So thankful to be a part of you guys. I'm so thankful to uh, see how the hand of the Lord has blessed us in so many ways, especially those kids that just uh, walked out of here. So thankful that the Lord has entrusted us with so many little souls. So thankful that He's put them in those children in the homes of parents who love Jesus and preach Jesus to them. And we will continue to pray in hopeful expectation of seeing them come to faith in Christ very soon. But this morning I want us to begin what will be a series of Advent sermons as we celebrate the first coming of the Lord and look toward the second coming of our, of our Lord. This week I wanted us to consider hope and then next week Tyler will lead us in peace. The third week I will be back to talk about love and then on Christmas Day Cody is going to lead us in reflecting on the joy that we have in Christ. So. Please be in prayer for all of us as we do this. I realize studying for this that I know that they will feel the same, just woefully inadequate to talk about these particular things during this time of year. Just got such an overwhelming sense of that last night and had to spend much time with the Lord. Especially when you begin to talk about peace and just how wonderful it is. I don't think that we realize how much of a role... Um, that I said peace, that, that hope plays in our lives. You know, in, in the wisdom of God, we consider how we're created. And physically, it is overwhelming to consider the physical attributes that we have. They're absolutely intricate and, and beyond our ability to adequately understand them sometimes. They're so tremendous. But the same thing can be said about our inner man as well. Even, I was reflecting on this last night, even the man who is separated from Christ doesn't know Christ. God has done such a tremendous work in designing that inner man in, in ways that we can't really comprehend. But I think in one of those ways is He's given all men hope. And we operate daily by hope. In fact, hope is probably what motivates us every day. I think it's certainly what gets us out of bed. Hope for better things. Hope for better days. Hope for better circumstances, hope for better health, hope for our kids to finally turn the corner on things. And so we just really need to realize what our Lord has done in designing hope within our life. And we also know that when all hope is lost, what we experience can range from deep disappointment all the way to absolute, utter despair. In fact, being altogether without hope is the most disheartening of places. It is the darkest of places, and we would never want for anyone to be left without any hope in anything. That would be, I guess, the essence of lifelessness. So if we're going to talk about hope, you do realize that I could have gone to just a number of places. We've been, what, the last few weeks in the psalmist, and we've talked about their attitudes toward things. We've talked about their attitude toward sin. We turn to Psalm 71 where David is the old gray-haired man and we talked about his attitude toward dependence upon God for everything. We talked about David's attitude toward the worship of God. And you do realize he also talked about hope. And we could, we could turn to Psalm 71 and talk about the attitude of hope that all of the psalm writers had. It's absolutely remarkable. In fact, David says in Psalm 71, My hope is in you continually. And if you remember, he, he does three things now, and I'll eventually get back to Psalm 71. Um, I'm not going to do that right now, but he, he continually hopes to be in the 
presence in communion with God. He continually hopes for that. He says, I continually come to you. Last week I told you that he says, I continually praise you. I continually worship you. Well, near the end of that psalm, he says, my hope is continually in you. Meaning, all the time, David had his hope set on the Lord. And so, there are a number of places, and I pray that you'll be looking for those places and consider hope this particular month. But to talk about hope, we always have to lay out some definitions because the world always has their own definitions that's fake, that's false. The enemy establishes those definitions, and then we have the true faithful definitions that we always find in the Word of God. Now, as far as hope goes, the kind of hope that we find in the world is grounded in personal desire. It's a hope-so sort of thing. In other words, if I really, 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 really hope for something and pursue it, I can make it happen. It, it's very closely related to that power of positive thinking that's crept into the church. It's a false teaching. But that's their hope, and it's grounded in nothing more than their own personal desires. Whatever they hope for has become their hope. Whatever they're hungry for has become their hope. Now, it is not all bad. You do realize your kids are going to switch into that mode if they haven't already along about December 24th, and they're going to go to bed in hope that their desires will be fulfilled the first thing in the morning when they get up, right? That's this hope. As adults, we probably see this hope when we go to work and people start talking about winning the lottery. And so everybody has that hope so sort of thing, you know. I really hope, I really hope, I really hope that the lottery will come my way or I'll strike it rich in some way. That's this sort of hope and it, it's just grounded in, in nothing but self and selfish desires. And I know we have that sometimes, but we have to grow up. We have to move on and we have to realize those are not the sort of hopes that we want to involve ourselves in. Now, there are two hopes in the Bible. One of them is good and faithful, and one of them is grand and glorious. The one that is good and faithful, that hope, it does not violate the Word of God, and it is fully submitted to the will of God. But the hope still comes from a personal desire. And so the difference is, it's not selfish, it's in accordance with the Word of God, and it's submitted to the will of God as if, if it does not take place, we're okay trusting that the Lord has accomplished His will. The place that you see this, one of the places that you see this is in Philippians 2, where Paul is in prison writing a letter to the church at Philippi, and he wants to send Timothy there to check on the church and encourage the church. And so this is what Paul says in this letter, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly. See, Paul had a hope. And he understood that that hope totally didn't violate the Word of God. It would be a very good thing for a man of God to go to a church and invest some time and, and effort and prayer and instruction and preaching and teaching into that church. Paul knew that was a great idea. And so he hoped in the Lord that Timothy would be able to do that. But he also understood the will of the Lord very clearly in his life. He experienced how the will of the Lord sometimes went contrary to what Paul had already set his heart on. Remember, I think it's in Acts 16. Paul wanted to go to a couple of different places, the Phrygian and the Galatian region. God had called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He's on his way on the second missionary journey. He wants to go into these two regions, but it, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit prevented him or forbid him to go into those regions. 
He then wanted to turn to Bithynia, and then it says the Spirit of Jesus did not permit him. And so Paul began to, this began to take shape in his life, and it really needs to begin to take shape in our lives. We have a hope in the Lord. We understand it doesn't violate the Word of God, or it couldn't be a hope in the Lord. But we also understand that the will of God is, is totally better than anything we could ever desire. And so we hope in the Lord submitted to the will of the Lord. Paige and I are doing this right now with really all of our kids. I mean, we've got a hope in the Lord that Jonathan and Audrey will be able to move closer to us this summer. We've prayed about that. And it's submitted to the Word of God. There's certainly nothing that's going to violate the Word of God for our children who are in ministry and wanting to become more active in ministry to come this way and spend some time with us while we're in ministry. But that desire is fully submitted to the will of God because we know that the best thing for them is not our desires, but the will of God. And so we've prayed and we've actually even communicated to them in Psalms 37, where David writes, Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and cultivate faithfulness. In other words, what we've told Audrey and Jonathan is, wherever you find yourself, just be faithful with what the Lord's put in front of you. And I would encourage y'all to do the same thing. Don't worry about tomorrow or what's around the next corner or what's coming up. Be faithful right here, right now, in this day to the Lord and trust Him moving forward. Abby, Nathan's got a hope in the Lord come summer, right? And it perfectly glorifies God. My son's got his own hopes, but you see how this works, right? There are hopes that are in the Lord, because you understand them not to violate the Word of God, but at the same time, you're thoroughly submitted to the will of God, and that's a grander and greater desire. Now, the last hope is a different kind of hope. It's grounded in something different. It is not grounded in us at all. It's a sure hope. It's a certain hope, and it's grounded in the heart of God. This hope is grounded in the person of God and in the work of God, and I really struggle with even referring to it as a hope. Because when something's grounded in God, it is most certain to come to pass. There is no question whatsoever. It is good, it is right, and it is holy. And our Father will bring it to pass. So let's talk a little bit more about hope to clear this up before we get to our great hope. In the Old Testament, there is an absolute clear and definitive line between hope and hopelessness. Now, you really need to understand this because I think the more that you understand this, the more that you'll rejoice in the hope that we have. But you do realize before the gospel, you and I had no hope. Before Christ came, it was darkness. It was absolutely hopelessness. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 2 uses these words to describe Gentiles before the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul writes this, You were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. Generations and generations of men and women and children before Christ came lived in absolute darkness, having no hope because they had no access to God. And I want us to reflect on that. And I want us to grab a hold of that because if we grab a hold of that, 
How much more hope and joy do you have now knowing that your Savior has come? And He has preached the Gospel to all men, and so therefore all men have hope. I would imagine if we could really get a hold of the hope that we have now in Christ, we'd have absolutely no problem walking across the street to share the message of hope with our neighbor. We'd absolutely would not flinch at work to just share the hope that we have in Jesus because it's been made available to all men. We would look for a plane to get on board going somewhere, anywhere, it really didn't matter because we had a message that all men need to hear. And I think if we could really get a hold of how we were and who we were before Christ came for us, I don't think that would be any problem for any of us. Y'all, we have a tremendous hope now that our forefathers as Gentiles never had. In fact, the Jews, you know, in the Old Testament was the only nation that had hope because they were the only peoples that were in a relationship with the Father. They were the only ones that had a covenant that God had formed with them. They were the only ones that had access to God. And I realize it was a limited access, but listen, access to God is hope. If you have access to God, you have hope. But they were the only ones that had hope, save just a few sprinklings that you've got to search diligently to find outside of the Jewish peoples or outside of the Hebrews. For instance, there was, interestingly enough, a prostitute named Rahab. Sprinkling of hope on her and her family. There was another woman that came from a very sexually immoral people, the Moabites. She was a Moabitess named Ruth. Sprinkling of hope that was put on her from the grace of God and she was not a part of the Jewish people. You've got a widow in Zarephath. You've got a military leader, Naaman the Syrian, who had leprosy. But apart from a handful of people, we had no hope before Christ came. But now that Christ has come, we live in the blessed days of hope. Y'all realize that? We're so busy talking about, and so consumed in our thoughts, talking about how bad our days are and how bad our times are, how terrible things have become. You need to be careful with that. Because we live in the greatest time that you'll find in the Scriptures. We live in the days of hope. We live in the days where you can go anywhere and preach the Gospel to any man and there's hope because that message is being proclaimed. These are great days. And we ought to praise the Lord that we live in such great days that the grace of God has been cast over all of humanity. And we can preach a message that turns the light on, that draws them out of darkness to light, right? We've got great things and we've got a great message and we live in great times. Now, as Christians, again, working through understanding hope, I, I thought about this. If I sent a list around this morning or just cards that you could privately write your answers on, and I ask you, what do you have a hope for? I think that we would get a number of different answers, interestingly enough. But I think the number one answer, if I got all those cards together and just graded you, I think the number one answer would be that you have a hope for eternal life. And that's a great hope, right? In fact, Paul begins his letter to Titus with that way. He says in Titus 1 and 2, "...in the hope of eternal life..." which God, who cannot lie, promised ages ago the hope for everlasting life, the hope for heaven. 
You know, you can find that hope in the Old Testament, but it's pretty difficult to find. One of the few places that you'll find it is in Psalm 16, where David writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. So even before Christ came, before the Gospel was preached, under the Old Covenant, they had this hope for eternal life, but it was in the shadows. It was in the darkness. They could not understand it. They could only comprehend their own desire to live eternally with God in heaven. But they had no way of knowing how that would come to be. But when you walk into the New Covenant, the New Testament, all the shadows are gone. There is no darkness. It could not be more clear. It is crystal clear that we have eternal life in Christ. And if you have Christ, it is a sure hope. It is a great hope. There's no question about it. If Christ was raised from the dead, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, then we too will be raised from the dead. Because if we're not raised from the dead, He was never raised from the dead. You see how certain this hope is. There's no more questions about it. So we all have this hope for eternal life. In fact, I, I don't, I've probably met a couple of men that were so foolish to not believe in such a thing. But I believe 99.9% .9 of the people that I've ever met have this hope for eternal life. Even though the majority of them don't know Christ, they still hold out a hope for everlasting life. Secondly, and I was like, I bet this would be a really top race. Secondly, I think we have a hope to see our loved ones in heaven. That one might come up to tied first place. I don't know. It's difficult to talk about that because we all have that, don't we? Man, we all have that in our hearts and we don't have the words to talk about it. In fact, we probably don't want to talk about it much because tears will start streaming down our face. But you do realize Paul talks about that hope. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And what he's talking about, there are people who have no hope because they don't have Christ. And he says, but you're not like that. You're not ones who have no hope. You're those who have hope because you know that there will be a day, he talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, at the return of Christ, right? The dead shall be raised and we will join those who have gone before us and we will be with our loved ones forever. Man, you see, I don't know. It'd be close. How awesome is that going to be? And we can all say amen and amen, right? That is a tremendous hope. There's another hope that I really hope would be on hope in the Lord, that it would be on all of y'all's list, and that would be a hope for righteousness. Paul talks about that in Galatians 5. He says, Through the Spirit, by faith, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. The hope and the hunger for holiness. I pray that that would make that on your list, or that would make your list, but... You know, I got all high and mighty with that when I was contemplating that. I was thinking to myself, man, I, the older I get, the more I hope for righteousness. And then I quickly rebuked myself and said, yeah, Joey, but that hope is about as deep as your throat. Because if you really hope for righteousness, you would pray through the watches of night for personal holiness and you would fast for that righteousness. If you're doing that, I admire you. But we all need to be doing that. We need to have such a hunger 
for righteousness, an equal hunger for righteousness as we do eternal life and to see our loved ones. I pray that we would hunger so for righteousness that we would stay up through the watches of night to beg God for that righteousness. I know it's coming. And we'll all be made that way, but for goodness sakes, let's not be lazy in our hunger for it. Let's even fast for righteousness and that God would deal with the sin in our own life. So there's a lot of them, right? There's a lot of hopes that we have, but I think the greatest hope, no, I don't think, the greatest hope without question is found in Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Notice with me there, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult, ESV uses the word rejoice, I like that better. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul's climbing a mountain. He says, because you've been justified by faith, he's going to lay out three things for us. And he's, he keeps walking closer and closer to God. He says, number one, you've got peace. Tyler's going to talk about this next week. We have peace with God. We don't make peace with God. He makes peace with us, and He has made peace with us through what He has done in His Son. He says, secondly, let's go further. Through Christ also, you've been brought into this grace in which you stand, and stands in a perfect tense. You stand in the state of having been graced by God. And do you know when that's going to end? Never. The only thing God has in store for you is more grace. It is mountains of grace that is going to be poured out on your life for the rest of eternity. Grace upon grace upon grace, never-ending waves of grace. Let's go up higher. Because of that justification by faith, because we have peace with God, because we stand in the state of having been graced by God, we can now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And He's brought us to the top of the mountain. That is our greatest hope. That is, in effect, our only hope. Because you do realize, if we attain, and, and you will in Christ, when you attain to the hope of the glory of God, all your other hopes are fulfilled. Because in God is everything that we hope for. You hope for eternal life, it's found in God. You hope to see your loved ones again, that's found in God. You hope for righteousness, that's found in God. All of our hopes come together in one person, one glorious God. And we have that hope in the glory of God because we have Christ. Now, we've got to talk about glory. When he talks about glory, he's talking about the glorious awesomeness of the presence of God. So he's, has, he, has, he hasn't gotten away from being with Him and being in Him, being perfectly united with Him in Christ. But he's referring to that as this expression of the hope for the glory of God. And when he words it like that, we should immediately drop our hearts and drop our heads for just a second because in this thing for which we hope the glory of God is the very thing that we violated as sinners. The thing that we hope for is the thing that we've ruined. You think about Romans 1. 
You don't have to go back there. But Paul says this, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man or birds or animals or crawling creatures. Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory of God. And so this thing that we hope for, this hope for the glory of God, is the very thing that we've rebelled against, is the very thing that we've ruined. Our greatest desire is the thing that we've despised in our own hearts. What's worse, we are convinced that we can produce that hope ourselves. Because remember, no one ever lets go of that hope for eternal life. Therefore, by default, no one ever loses that hope that they have in God. And so they go about the process of creating their own hope and creating their own way to God. That's exactly what the, the Israelites did. Right? Paul talks about that in, in Romans 10. They had a zeal for God. Someone was talking about that the other day. Maybe my wife, we were talking about a particular podcast. But you do realize the majority of the world has a zeal for God. But it's not in accordance with knowledge. And they are convinced that they have made their own way to God. They've constructed their own ladder of hope for which they will crumb. All the other religions in the world do this very thing. But we as Christians need to know hope does not lie within us. There is no way possible for us to be able to produce hope. We've ruined hope. But by the grace of God, hope comes from outside of us. It comes from someone, our glorious God, and it comes to us as a gift. He can never trust us with hope. Not the great hope. He had to take care of that all Himself and give that to us as a gift. So hope comes to us by the way everything else comes to us, and that's by way of promise. Our hope comes to us by way of promise. I know you remember this. Someone, someone will read it. You'll hear it sometime this month. It's the greatest promise that you're going to find in the Old Testament. It's found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah the prophet is speaking. He says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call His name Emmanuel. I know you remember that. Do you remember the context in which that promise was made? Times were terribly dark. The promise came to the king of Judah. Now you've got to remember, Judah is... Out of all the, his peoples, out of all the Israelites, that nation, there was one particular group within that nation that was the very heartbeat of God, the apple of his eye. That was the tribe of Judah, where Jerusalem was. And in the city of Jerusalem was where the presence of God was. And so it was in this context that God gives us this promise. But the nation's being led by, if not the, one of the most wicked kings they ever had, King Ahaz. To make matters worse, Ahaz was at war with his own brothers. The other tribes of the nation of Israel, their king had formed a relationship with the Arameans, a completely godless nation. Isn't that, or doesn't that sound interesting when those who profess to know the Lord form a relationship with those who completely reject God and they form together and come against the people of Judah? 
their own brothers. And so the Lord sends out Isaiah the prophet. And he says, listen, go to King Ahaz, who is trembling, by the way, over this war. And he says, tell him, don't worry about this. They may come against you, but they will not harm you. In fact, the Lord says to him, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. In other words, I'm going to take care of this. And then he tells Ahaz this, ask for a sign of my deliverance. Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Just ask me for a sign, king. I'm going to deliver you. Do you remember what Ahaz did? No thanks. I'm not going to ask for a sign. And you're like, are you kidding me? It's handed to you on a platter. God said, make it anything you want. He doesn't care. He wants to give you a sign of your deliverance. And that wicked king says, nah. And he turns to the Assyrians for his deliverance. Now, what do you think God would do in that moment? I mean, it looks like to me he would just immediately mete out judgment, right? But rather than that, God turns to His grace. And this is what He says, Since you will not ask for a sign yourself, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. You're too foolish to ask for a sign. That's fine. I'll give you a sign anyway. But I don't want to deliver. I'll take care of that. I don't need a sign. I understand, but I'm going to send a deliverer anyway, and I'm going to give you a sign anyway. You think, man, that's terrible context, but you do realize we were in the same context when the Lord fulfilled that promise. You're in Romans 5, look at verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You need a Savior. I don't need a Savior. Why would I need a Savior? Because you're a sinner. I'm not a sinner. What makes you think I'm a sinner? Stop judging me. What is God going to do with that? Don't need, a, don't need a Savior? Don't think you're a sinner? Fine. I won't send a Savior. But God's like, I hear what you're saying. You're absolutely unconvinced that you're a sinner. You're absolutely convinced you don't need a Savior but I'm going to send a Savior anyway. And so God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died anyway for us. You see, God was forming our hope and He was not going to let us mess up this hope. This was the work of God. And so we move from the promise of hope to the Gospels where we hear the birth of hope. And I know without question, this is something that you will hear and your family better hear, Dad. Luke chapter 2 an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger and suddenly there appeared with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. There was a morning when hope dawned. 
And this is why I'm preaching this message now. This is what we celebrate this entire month. The morning that God made good on that promise. And He sent a Savior. And it's an absolutely remarkable morning, and you need to consider this at great length. That was the morning that the glory of God took on the frailty of human flesh. Out of all the things that seem absolutely impossible in my mind, there is nothing greater than this. How in the world do you get the manifest glory of God in the body of a man? It seems as though it would absolutely consume it in a moment. But God was so faithful and so careful and in constructing our hope, He sent His Son and He was born as a baby in a manger. And you know, the only ones that I think realized that were the angels in heaven. Because they're the only ones that broke out and erupted in joyous celebration of our great God. But you know what? I realize the reason that others didn't then because they didn't understand. But y'all, we understand. How in the world can we contain our joy in knowing what God has done? It should not be possible. It should be equally impossible to get the glory of God in a man. How about get the joy that we should now have put in our little bitty hearts? How do you contain that much joy if we would truly get a hold of what God has done in fulfilling our great hope on our behalf. These are extraordinary things that we celebrate right now. And you really need to communicate this to your children. I've got to go on because we've got more work because hope did not stop there. There was more work to do. Hope had to be secured and cemented for all those who believe, right? So hope was secured on the day when our Lord spoke these words. It is finished. He breathed His last, placed His body in a tomb, but three days later, God raised hope from the dead. You want to talk about a thing to sing about. That's when hope was absolutely made secure on our behalf. When He walked out of that tomb, and He walked up that mount of God, and the Father crowned him king and set him at his right hand. You got to realize, I don't know why we can call it hope. It's no longer hope, right? It was cemented firmly in the desire and the will of God. It is the most certain thing in the whole of your life. It is more certain than the pew you're sitting on right now. It's more of a certain thing than the breath that you drew yesterday. Simply because these are the things that God has done and we have not been allowed to touch them for He was going to make certain that our hope would come to pass. Look at this in Romans 5. Look how He communicates. There's no way that we can be disappointed in these things. Romans 5, verse 5. Hope does not disappoint. Why not? Here's why. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. For while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
He really lays out three things here why hope can never disappoint you. Reason number one, walking backwards through these things, is Christ died for you. <laughs> God sent His Son to die for your hope. This is more than hope. This is absolutely more than hope. And not only that, through the death of Christ, He demonstrates His love for us. God says, let me show you how much I love you. Those who believe Christ has died for you. That is a demonstration of my love for you. What's more? Go back up to verse 5. Because the love of God has been poured out through the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, God says, not only have I demonstrated my love, I have poured my love out within you through the Holy Spirit. And then look at the third thing. Who He has given to us. I've given you my Son. I've given you my Spirit. And I've done it all as a demonstration and as a pouring out of my love. Therefore, hope can never disappoint. Remember those three hopes? The first one is a hope so it's grounded in your selfish, sinful desires. The second hope, I hope in the Lord, but I'm submitted to the will of the Lord. But then we get to this third hope, this great hope. No, listen, this one is not grounded in you. This one is grounded in God. This one is grounded in the heart and the desire of God. It will not pass. It will not go away. It will not go anywhere. This is the most certain thing in all of humanity. Do you realize this took place in the heart of God before He ever set a star in the sky? This was the predetermined plan of God. This was the first act as far as our minds can comprehend and as far as Scripture communicates to us. This was the first act of God. So when I say this is more certain than your breath yesterday, you need to understand the things that we talk about here happened well before yesterday. They happened before time. Therefore, they are, I would say, the most certain thing that God has given us. There is no question about your hope for the glory of God if you're in Christ. We have such a hope. We have such a tremendous hope. And that hope will be realized at the second advent. This month we celebrate the first, but we look forward to that second one when all of our hopes will be fulfilled when we see our Lord Jesus. Now, for the sake of my own soul, and very quickly, I have one more point and then we'll finish in prayer and we'll come before the table this morning. But you need to know how this hope works. I told you in the wisdom of God, He's worked this or woven this into the fabric of our hearts. But God does not leave hope to emotions. No. He's got to work it much deeper into our souls. Hope is very important to God. And so just like everything else, there's human responsibility and there's sovereignty. And God uses both of those things to develop this hope. He's not going to just leave you to work this hope up on a daily basis or work it up on Sunday morning. God's like, no, no, no. Hope is way more important than that. And so the first thing that He gives us is our responsibility to set our hope in Christ. If you're taking notes, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes this, Prepare your minds for actions. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul communicates that. Other New Testament writers communicate that. This is so important and you have to do this. 
We've got a hope for a lot of things. But your primary hope, so much so that this should be your only hope, is that you need to fix your hope completely on the grace that you will be brought at the revelation or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to do that every day. You've got to fix your hope. And when we get other hopes and we want other things to take place in our life, you've got to do the business of deconstructing those things and making sure that your grand hope, your great hope, is the hope that we'll know fully at the return of Christ. Fix your hope. Secondly, I want you to look at Romans 5. And this one is a little frightening to the soul, but this is the sovereign work of God. Look at verse 3. Not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations. Why in the world would you rejoice in sufferings and tribulations? Well, look, tribulation brings about perseverance. In other words, the more that you walk through difficult and dark days, the more you learn to persevere in those days. Why? Keep reading. Perseverance produces proven character. You know how God manifests godliness in the lives of His people? Well, it starts with difficult days, dark days, and tribulations and suffering because those produce perseverance. And the more that we stand steadfast, the more like Christ we become. Well, why does He want that? Well, keep reading. Proven character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You know, this is the part that got me last night. And I told the Lord, I said, I can't preach on hope. I don't know anything about it much. Because I've realized the only way for us to truly understand hope is for the Lord to wreck us at the depth of our soul and cause us to long for Him. In other words, the Lord has to drop the plow somewhere down in here. And for us to walk through sufferings and difficulties and trials. And it's there God says, I'm manifesting hope. You see how important hope is to God? It's emotional, but that's a long way from the truth of it. It runs much deeper than that. And you're like, why in the world does the Lord want to build such a foundation of hope in our souls? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers that question. Hebrews 6. Let me read this and we'll pray. He says there, We who have taken refuge in Christ would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. In other words, God says, I'm building you a place to stand. I'm building you a place for you to stand in hope, in faith, no matter what comes your way. No matter how long I tarry before I send my Son, you'll still be standing in hope. No matter what goes wrong physically, emotionally, in your life, it does not matter. You'll still be standing with your head up looking for the glorious appearing of your Savior when all hope will be satisfied in your heart. I'm building you a place to stand. In order to construct that, He's got to dig somewhere down in here. You see, it's not something that you just kind of rev up every day and get your hope going in the Lord. You have to set your hope in the Lord, but the Lord's like, yeah, I'm not going to leave it there. I'm going to build it. And so when we face those difficult days, and some of you are right now, praise God. 
He's constructing hope in your heart because He wants you to stand. Paul offers a prayer of hope. And so as I close this in prayer, I will finish with these words. But let's go to the Lord in prayer.